The following message is from King's Church 1066, based in Hastings, Bexhill and the surrounding area. For more information, head to our website, kings1066.org. don't know me I'm Natalie Um, that video we just wanted to show that um, to just give you some ideas of how you might be able to get involved with some of the things that we run as a church and you may have noticed as you came in there were three stands just out there our youth are going out now by the way sorry I probably should have said that first I did have that as the next thing to say if you're wondering why people are getting up and walking out they're not bored already Um, it is that our youth are going out but yeah you may have noticed there are three stands out there so please do after this morning's meeting, go and say hi, um, encourage them in any way that you can and find out more about what they are up to. I think um, most of you will know this already, but um, for those of you who don't, um, I have been on staff at King's Church for about 11 years. Uh, most recently, that involves overseeing social action, the projects that we run to help those trapped in poverty or injustice in our communities. And I'm leaving that role at the end of March. Like I say, I think most of you know that. I don't think that's going to come as a great surprise. I'm still going to be around. I'll still be in the church. I'll still be a trustee. You'll probably still have to listen to me preach from time to time. Uh, But I'm going to be working full time for Jubilee Plus, which is the Christian charity that um, I head up. And I'm really, really thrilled that one part of my job is going to be taken on by Richard and Anna Wilson. So Richard and Anna Wilson are going to be overseeing the social action projects in the church, all of them except Food Bank. And I'm just really delighted that they are going to be taking that on. So I just wanted to let you know that this morning. Um, Yeah, let's encourage them. So this Sunday and next Sunday, uh, we're going to be thinking about poverty and generosity. Next Sunday, we've got a guest speaker called Tim Robertson, who's coming from a charity called Compassion. And he'll be talking about how our lives here in Hastings and the surrounding areas can make a difference even to people on the other side of the world. You know, I believe firmly, and I know many of you do too, that God has made us to love him and to love one another. That our lives have a purpose, that we get to bring God glory but also to do other people good. And that's something we get to do here in our local area, but we also get to even have an impact on people in other nations. I really believe this year that God is drawing us deeper into this whole area of generosity. That in light of all the chaos around us, you know, on the back of the pandemic and now in the cost of living crisis, all the things we're seeing around us, I believe that God is calling us in this season to increasing generosity and compassion. So next week, Tim's going to explore how the way we live our lives can actually affect people globally. But this morning, Richard and I are going to talk about what we can do in our little setting where we are right now, how we can make a difference on a local level to the people around us. Earlier this month, I spoke to someone who manages citizens' advice locally, and she was telling me that they have seen a massive increase in the number of people who are coming to them saying, I cannot pay my electricity, I cannot pay my gas bill. Maybe that might be some of us here this morning who are struggling with that too. She said that in the last year, they've had more people turn to citizens' advice in Hastings um, saying, I can't pay my energy bills, than they've seen in the whole of the last decade put together. 
It's shocking, isn't it? And what this actually looks like on the ground is people sitting in cold, dark homes. People who can't afford to actually even boil a kettle because they've run out of electricity, can't charge a phone, can't cook dinner. These things we so often take for granted, don't we? What Rich and I want to talk about this morning is that we worship a God, the God we've been singing praises to. We worship a God who cares about our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs. We worship a God who is concerned about where we're struggling with the things we need for day-to-day life. And we see this actually throughout the Bible. In both parts of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that God is a provider. In fact, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God is called Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, it means God will provide. And Jesus made this clear too in the Gospels, telling us that we don't need to worry about food or drink or clothing or shelter because our Father knows what we need and he cares for us. Now, if you're here and you're struggling this morning, you might think, well, I'm not seeing that in my life right now. I hope that this morning we're going to see how much God cares and how much God longs to provide for us when we are in need. We're going to look at a couple of ways that God provides for us when we're in need. And the first way, we're not going to linger on for long because it's a really obvious one. And the first way that God provides for us when we're in need is through work. Through work, through working. Work has been something we were created to do all along. Some of us, depending how we feel about our jobs, may um, think, I'm not sure my work feels like it's a blessing from the start. But actually the truth is that God created us all along to work. It was his plan for us. And that's all well and good, but what if you can't work? There are many, many reasons why people can't work. And even if you can work, what if you can't find a job? I've had two long periods of unemployment in my life where I I wanted to work, I just couldn't find a job. I couldn't get a job. But actually, the truth is that at the moment, even in the communities around us, There are people who are working and they still can't afford their energy bills, still can't afford to put food on the table. So what what if you can't work? What if you can work but you can't find a job? And what if you've got a job or two jobs or three jobs and actually you still can't make ends meet? In a time of crisis, I believe there are two ways in the Bible that God provides for us. Because even if we're not able to work or we're in work and it's not paying, God still wants to provide. So Rich is going to come up and he's going to take us through the first point, which is that God provides through his people. Yeah, I want to look at... um some of the ways God provided for Israel and then how God's story develops in new ways through the early church and then beyond. Genesis tells us that all creation is good. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Every seed time and harvest show God's provision. Then in time, we move on from Genesis and God provides the promised land for his people, Israel. But the people weren't just given land. God was very particular about how his people should live there. 
And they didn't just get religious instruction. God taught Israel how they should organise society and provide for one another, economically and socially. And God's plan then, God's plan now, is that the way his people lived should tell his story, proclaim him to other nations, the nations around Israel at that time particularly. And the laws and rules that were given to Israel expressed the very heart of God as provider. We get lots of um, detail, especially in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Paul, <laughs> about sharing their God-given resources fairly, about preventing exploitation, about limiting excessive wealth accumulation, about providing for the orphans and widows, the, the strangers and the weak. Every seven years, they had a, a Sabbath year, Sabbath rest. The land was to be rested from production. Debts cancelled, servants freed. And then every 50th year, we get the Jubilee, a year of liberty to restore uh, persons and properties. Society was in effect to be continually reset, brought back to a sort of an equilibrium. The Sabbath and the Jubilee were supposed to be uh, significant events in Israel's calendar. And in God's community, no one was to get too rich, no one was to get too poor. And if you're not so familiar with the history of Israel, can I encourage you this week just to have a look at Deuteronomy uh, 15, chapter, read that chapter, read Leviticus 25, just to get a taste of our God, God's heart and desires. <clears throat> it does seem unclear from history whether they, they actually implemented the Jubilee. But what we do know is that God's people, Israel, kept going off track. The point for us is that the Old Testament laws were expressions of God the provider and expressions of fairness and of justice and of compassion and of mercy. In essence, how things should be. Living God's way was about caring for one another and in community. Plus, God's ways were never just about his own chosen people. When Israel got it right, their generosity and care extended to foreigners too. Think particularly of the care given to the widowed Moabite, Ruth. Do you remember we had a preach series last year, if you were around, the whole story of Ruth. Just one of the important foreigners who ultimately get grafted into Jesus' family tree. Amazing. But sadly, Israel had a long history of ignoring God's ways. It was like all religious show and no right living. And when they failed, God had to send them the prophets like Isaiah and 
Amos and Micah, admonishing them for not taking care of the poor and so on. Here's Isaiah. I don't know if it's coming up on the screen. Is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? It's so important to understand this Old Testament backdrop of our own faith, if you're a Christian. You know, our Bibles may be set out in two parts, but God only has one story. The pursuit of an unlovable people, generally, then and now. The Old Testament always points to Jesus. It teaches us God's fundamental nature. It says in uh, Exodus 34, 6, God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And it tells what God wanted of his people. Micah 6, 8, to act justly, love mercy and walk humbly before him. Don't make the mistake of not knowing your Old Testament stories. Because when we get to Jesus and the early church, which we're going to move on to, the story's not altogether new or separate. It's God's one continuing story. When we get to Jesus, we see the Son of God fulfilling what has been revealed earlier in the Old Testament. One story. In Luke 4, we see Jesus deliberately reading from Isaiah 61 at the beginning of his ministry. He applies the Old Testament Jubilee proclamation to himself. And then here... Luke 7, 22. So he replied to the messengers, Jesus, this is, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom. We're excited about his future second coming. We were excited about that in the prayer meeting this morning. Jesus is coming again. Then all things are going to be made new. And the kingdom will come in all its fullness. But the kingdom is here now. Jesus' proclamation of jubilee is about dealing with forgiveness of sin and the problem, all that Paul brought earlier on. But it's not just about a personal, private salvation as if we keep it all to ourselves or it doesn't affect anything else. Release and freedom in jubilee terms is much more. One commentator puts it like this, that the economic and social aspects are of a peace with a greater reality, the restoration of a proper relationship between God and his people through the forgiveness of sin. And when Jesus taught, he also taught principles from the Sabbath and from the Jubilee. He wasn't simply talking economics, of course. He especially addressed heart attitudes. But his teaching is truly grounded in the world. In parables, Jesus used stories of cancelling debts. He taught the sharing of material possessions, 
giving to the poor, and he stressed trusting in God for daily provision rather than relying on our own abilities. We move on. Jesus returns to his Father. And then we see precious verses about the early church in Acts. Don't know this, this will come up. All the believers, one in heart and mind, no one claimed any of the possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that no one, there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land and or houses, sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, in the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned, bought, it the, the, bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. You know, there were no needy persons in the new church. That's a significant statement in Palestine of that day, Roman-controlled Palestine, where there was much poverty. And the early church would have included many uneducated and poorer people. But we're seeing the Holy Spirit-filled church living out what had been foreshadowed those years before. Here we're seeing Jewish believers who are now transformed Jesus followers. Generous giving sharing possessions, redistributing property, things foreshadowed in the Old Testament only become possible after Jesus, after the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. Next came the Jews, non-Jews, Gentiles coming into God's kingdom, people with other backgrounds and philosophies. They didn't have any idea about this Jehovah Jireh. But they learned too, Holy Spirit living, marked by God's mercy and love and compassion. Did it all last? Got a couple of quotes here. Rodney Stark, who is a sociologist of, of religion, actually proclaimed himself more of an agnostic. He said, one of the principal reasons Christianity grew while Roman paganism waned in the first to fourth centuries was because of the mercy Christians displayed toward people who physically suffered. And in particular, how Christians showed mercy during two plagues that ravaged the Roman Empire. And the Roman Emperor Julian quoted as saying, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. So what about us? Becoming a Christian still brings us into this same Jesus story, this same God story. Are you in that story yet? If you're not, come and see Paul afterwards. He told you what, what the gospel is all about. And the world around is still sick and lost. And we're in difficult times but we're the ones with the hope of the gospel. We're the ones with the hope of the gospel. God hasn't taken us away from the world, away from our unbelieving friends or, or our unbelieving colleagues or uh, our unbelieving neighbours. He's left us here 
to live out his better story. Israel couldn't live God's way. They kept falling into sin, idolatry and greed and not caring for one another, a bit like our world today. Israel couldn't reflect the character and purpose of God to the other nations as they were meant to. But now, born again, spirit-filled Jesus followers can. We're the ones who can live God's better story. We're the people with his calling and authority to display something of his beauty and compassion. We're the ones to display a different way of living to a broken world. We do live in an obsessively individualistic and materialistic world and debt is increasing and poverty is increasing. But we need to show how care and generosity are supposed to work. Our first challenge is to care for one another and be generous with one another because God provides for us through one another. But more than that, Christian care goes beyond our church family too. So are our lives fitting into the Bible story? For some of us, maybe let's reflect on whether we're living with too much excess while other friends here may be struggling through difficult times with the bills. How is it in your connect group maybe? Or maybe there's a modern day application of Old Testament gleaning What might not harvesting to the edge of our fields in order to supply others mean in practice today? Do we have good instincts to give our money and possessions freely? How might we really have everything in common? Back to that Emperor Julian quote before I pass back to Natalie. How about it being said of us? The impious King's Church Christians provide not only for their own poor, but for others as well. So, yeah, one of the ways, as Rich has so helpfully outlined to us, that God provides is through each other. And there's a challenge for us, isn't there? Because even in the cost of living crisis, we might personally be struggling. Um, But actually, we mustn't miss the fact that so often the way God does provide for us is uh, through other people. And therefore, so often the way God provides for other people is through us as well. But the second way God provides at a time of crisis is miraculously. His miraculous provision Now, first of all, we mustn't miss that it's actually miraculous every time someone's heart is moved to give. I think that, I know when my heart is moved to give, that is often a miracle. Um, Often God has to overcome a lot of things in my heart before. But I love this passage that's going to come up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 4. I love this passage about the Macedonians because what they did is the miraculous work of God where it says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That maths is a bit weird, isn't it? Abundance of joy combined with extreme poverty 
overflows in a wealth of generosity. It says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. This is a great passage to dig into, even in preparing for this. I've just loved kind of digging into this, thinking, do I beg earnestly for an opportunity to bring relief to some of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and beyond? Do I give according to my means and even beyond my means? Do I have that abundance of joy? And even sometimes in different periods of my life, a a level of poverty, perhaps not extreme, but do those things overflow into a wealth of generosity? Because as well as providing through his people, God loves to move us to give miraculously, but he also loves to provide directly, supernaturally as well. And when we think of the work of God supernaturally in terms of miracles, often we think about healing, don't we? We think in terms of maybe physical healing or mental healing or healing of broken hearts. Um, And that's wonderful. And obviously we want to see a lot more of that. And we love it when God does that. But actually, there are loads of examples in the Bible of where God provides for people's immediate physical needs where the miraculous actually is to do with food and drink and clothing and things like this. I'm going to w- take just very quickly take us through a few of them. Uh, we're not going to turn to them, but you can look them up afterwards if you're interested. So Psalm 78 has quite a few uh, reminders of what God did for the Israelites when they were in the desert, when they were with Moses. And they'd been rescued out of Egypt miraculously by God and In Egypt, they'd been in slavery, but it doesn't take long before they're in the desert and they're basically complaining, saying, we wish we could go back to our slavery. We wish we could go back to Egypt. And one of the reasons they're complaining is because they think they're going to starve or dehydrate to death. There's there's nothing for them to drink. There's no food for them. They're saying it was better when we were oppressed because at least we got fed in effect. But in Psalm 78, it mentions several examples of what God did. One thing it says in verse 15, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly. God literally, rocks were smashed and water that they could drink came out. In verse 24, it says, he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Literally food falling from the sky for the people of Israel to eat. It says in a couple of verses later, verse 27, he rained meat on them like dust. I don't know if I quite like the sound of that, but they ate and were filled, were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. As the Israelites walked around the desert with Moses, God gave them water out of rocks, manna out of the sky, and meat that fell on them like dust. They were given what they needed. But it's not just uh, that period of time wandering around the desert that God did that. Let me give you another example from the Bible of the prophet Elisha in two kings. We see again, time and time again, I'm just going to whisper through another few examples. In two kings chapter three, it says that the kings of Israel and Judah had gone out to war together. But after seven days of walking around a parched land, again, they had no water. And so God says to Elisha, I'm going to provide water in the dry stream bed. And that's exactly what God does. Water starts to pour out and they drink and they have enough. The next chapter, 2 Kings 4, there's a widow who is in so much debt that she's about to give her two sons into slavery. 
And through the prophet Elisha, God provides oil for this widow, an abundance of oil, so much so that she can pay off her debts and has enough to live on and keep her sons and they can survive through that difficult time. Same chapter, there's a famine where there's nothing to eat and someone goes and finds some herbs and tries to make a stew, but they realise after they've started eating it that it's poisoned. And again, God comes and through Elisha, not only makes the stew fine and harmless to eat, but also multiplies a small amount of bread so that it's enough for a hundred people. And one final example from Elisha is in 2 Kings chapter 6, where the sons of the prophets don't have anywhere to live. And so they're chopping down trees to make homes for themselves. And one of them is chopping away when the axe head he's using flies off and sinks in a river. Now, the reason this is a disaster for him is because he borrowed it. And under the law of the time, if he borrowed it and lost it, he would have had to repay it. So he's starting out where he can't afford his own tool to cut down trees to make his home. He's borrowed it. And for him, it would have been a catastrophe to have lost it because it would have meant he was suddenly in debt and not able to pay off that debt. And then God does through Elisha another miracle where Elisha basically just throws a stick into the river where this axe head fell and the axe head just floats back up to the surface. These are astonishing miracles that really happened. They're true stories. They're not kind of fairy tales that are nice bedtime stories for the kids. These are things that God really did, whether it's food or drink or tools that are needed to work, to provide a home. Again and again, we see in the Bible that God cares about our needs. He cares about an axe head that falls in the river. He cares about a stew that's turned poisonous. He cares about, when we, even when we're grumbling and complaining that we don't have enough, God cares. The most obvious example from the Gospels, of course, is Jesus multiplying bread for the 4,000 and for the 5,000. We, we, uh, we see Jesus do this, don't we, where a little packed lunch, in effect, is brought to him. And he multiplies it so much that everyone has more than enough to eat and there are baskets left over. God is a God of abundance. He is a God of provision. And okay, so these are stories from the Bible. And we think, well, do we see this happening today? We give you one example. It's from the 19th century, so it's not quite today. Some of you would have heard of George Muller. George Muller was a guy who just loved Jesus. And as a result of his love for Jesus, he set up five orphanages. And you might have heard stories because they're, they're famous stories. They're told a lot of desperate times in these orphanages when they were literally hundreds of kids sitting down for breakfast, but there wasn't any food and there wasn't anything to drink. And things happened like milk carts broke down outside at the exact moment the children were sat inside with George Muller praying, will you give us something to drink? And a milk cart would break down and the, milk, the guy would say, you can have it all because I can't take it. I can't do anything with it. Bread was multiplied to them. Actually, it's how George Muller lived his whole life. We hear about the stories of the orphanages, but actually, if you look into the life of George Muller, he lived reliant on the provision of God every day. Talks about one Sunday where him and his wife and their child were at home and they had no food to eat and no money to buy food. And they were used to praying for money to come in. But on this occasion, George knew that even if money came to them that day, the shops were shut. It wasn't like now when shops are open on a Sunday. There would be no way, even if money turned up, that George could get food for his family for that night. 
So what did God do? He told someone to take money and bread to George's house so that he could buy food for the next day, but he could eat that night with his family as well. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen it in many different ways. I've seen it where I wandered away from God for years and got myself into really bad debt. And I've paid off that debt now, but I sh it should have taken me years and years and years. And in the end, it only took me about five years. And if I do that maths, there is no way that adds up. I'm pretty bad at maths, but let me say, if you did that maths, there's no way it adds up. It just doesn't. There is no way. I don't know how I got debt free when I got debt free. It just shouldn't have happened. That is a miracle that I cannot explain. But there also have been times in my life where the miracle has been someone giving to me or blessing me. So around that same period of time, I think I've mentioned this before when I've spoken here, my small group bought me a car. They, I needed a car and they clubbed together and bought me a car. And to be honest, that felt miraculous to me, their generosity. Even recently, a couple of weeks before Christmas, I was sitting in my flat watching water pour down one of the walls in my living room and all these cracks that have suddenly appeared in the walls. And I was praying and I was saying, God, I believe this flat is a blessing to me. Please, will you provide what I need? Please, will you help me with this? I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, our managing agent's going to give me a bill at some point and I'm going to have to pay for it. And I was like, God, please, will you provide? And within five minutes, I'm not exaggerating, within five minutes, I had a text message from a couple I've only met a couple of times saying, God's put you on our heart. Please, can we have your personal bank details? And they gave me a thousand pounds. From the moment I prayed to the moment that £1,000 appeared in my bank account was 15 minutes. God loves to provide. He loves to do it through each other. He loves for us to have that opportunity like the Macedonians to give joyfully. But he also does it miraculously when we can't explain it. There's no human way to explain it. So I believe for us as a church, at the start of 2023, God is calling us to do two things. I think the first one is that we're to step up in our own sharing and generosity. I know this is what he's saying to me. I'm to be more generous this year than I've ever been before. He is calling us to step up, but he is also calling us to step out in new ways in faith for miraculous provision that we will see supernatural provision that we cannot explain. My dream is that we'll see people come up to the food bank saying, I had a referral voucher. I don't need it anymore. What do I do with it? Because somehow this food turned up at my door or somehow this loaf of bread seemed to last three weeks instead of like two days or, you know, these things sound extraordinary, but I'm in faith that God can do it. Don't you believe that he can? I believe that he wants to lead us into a season of more miraculous provision. So just to finish, I just want to say, if you are in need here this morning, I hope that there's something that's stirred in you to expect God to provide miraculously for you. But if you're comfortable here this morning, then please expect God to provide miraculously through you. I believe God wants to do both in that, this next season. Sam and Claire are going to come up and lead us in a response to this.